All right, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks for joining us. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, a writer faces one of her greatest fears. I decided, you know, this is something I ran away from. And really, as a personal philosophy, I don't believe in running away from things. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this, and I'm going to overcome this fear once and for all. Jennifer Ouellette is a science writer. Physics is her specialty. She's authored several books on the subject, writes a blog about it. You might say she has a thing for it. But like a lot of relationships that look perfect on the outside, this one has some private issues. See, Jennifer has loved physics for a long time, but she could not abide its best friend, math. She'd gotten turned off to math in her school years and had been avoiding it ever since. Avoidance became dread, and the dread sort of festered. Well, eventually, she got tired of running and decided to confront the source of her anxiety. She resolved to learn calculus as a full-grown adult. And by and by, she discovered it wasn't so fearsome after all. In fact, now they're good buddies. That reconciliation is the subject of Jennifer Wellett's latest book, The Calculus Diaries. How math can help you lose weight, win in Vegas, and survive a zombie apocalypse. And that title right there tells you a lot about the predicament of math education in the U.S. today. The fact that we need zombies to lure people into a discussion of mathematics. In other words, it's gotten to the point where ambulatory, flesh-eating corpses are less frightening than some equations scribbled on a blackboard. How do we come to be so afraid of math? And what can we do to overcome that phobia? Well, those are some of the subjects in Jennifer's book, and that's some of what we'll be talking about today. We'll also learn some math, but uh, don't go running away because I promise you, we will talk about zombies too. Jennifer, can we um, agree to do this interview without mentioning the C word? <laughs> it's scary, isn't it? <laughs> I'm afraid I'll scare all the listeners off the minute I mention the subject of this interview. Um, don't go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, you as a, as a science writer must have grappled with that too. I mean, math has become you know such a boogeyman, uh, at least in America. Mm-hmm. You know that the first mention of it sends people screaming and running. Yeah, you know, and I, and I totally get that, which is why I wanted to write the book because I am one of those people. In fact, while I was writing the book, my husband and I were in a bookstore and uh, we were looking through the science section. He handed me a math book. I go, "No, I don't want that." And he was, "You realize that this is what you're up against with your own book." And I went, "I know, and I still don't want that book." <laughs> <laughs> your husband is Sean Carroll, the physicist who's been on this show. Oh. A few okay. months ago, we talked about time. That's uh, his baby. So I'm I'm betting that he was looking at his own books, just seeing if the bookstore carried his own books. <laughs> That's what <laughs> and authors do. It was do. there. It was there. <laughs> so. But you have a special advantage, I guess, as a science writer, having a husband who's a physicist, and he has a great advantage as a physicist writing popular science, having a wife who's a science writer. Yeah, we help each other out. It works out very nicely. Um, th- th- it's it's funny because I don't think I would have taken on a book about calculus if I didn't have a built-in tutor living with me at home, and a very patient one at that. Because it does put, it did put a little bit of a strain you know, <laughs> for, for a few weeks there. There was a period where I was really struggling and, and uh, getting very frustrated. Um, but um, I, I remember sitting down on the couch, and I was working one evening, and I was doing my little baby calculus. And he was working on some multiverse, you know, dark matter, dark energy physics paper. And at some point, um, I asked him a question. He goes, you know, I'm using that exact same equation right here. And I went, what? 
He goes, no, it's just a tool. And, you know, he was using that one little piece as part of a broader calculation. But the fact is that these tools are, are kind of ubiquitous when it comes to this. And it really helped me see math as it's something that you use, like a hammer or a screwdriver, as opposed to just something you memorize and find boring. Mm. That it means something and it's useful for something. And it changed my attitude a little bit. I love that image of you with uh, your husband, Sean, the physicist. He's writing the big league science paper, (laughs) and you're doing your baby calculus. I'm picturing like you in the little fake kid's driver's seat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When did you first, though, in your life, um, give up on calculus? Because uh, the story of this book is that you are one of many people uh, who's sort of a math refugee coming back. Yeah. And learning it as an adult. I gave up on it in high school. In fact, I avoided it altogether. Um, and I'm not even sure why, because I did okay. I, you know, I was one of those straight-A students, and, you know, I did well in math. I think it was because everything else came so easily to me, and I actually had to work at the math, mm-hmm. that I got it into my head that I wasn't good at it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. I didn't see the point. I didn't see why I was learning this. And um, one of the things I wanted to convey in the book is... This stuff is relevant. Everything that you're learning in your cl- your math classes actually is building to something. And it would be really helpful, I think, if teachers could give a sense of where you're going. Not you know, they, they say that, you know, oh, well, you're not ready for that yet. Well, just give me an idea where I'm going so that I'm not just flying blind here. Uh, so I gave up. I, I never took it. I avoided it. And many years later, I really, after I'd been writing about physics for a while, I slowly started to get over my math phobia because you can't really write about physics without having to start to dabble in some basic algebra. And um, and at some point, I decided, you know, this is something I ran away from. And really, as a personal philosophy, I don't believe in running away from things. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this, and I'm going to overcome this fear once and for all. So X number of years later, to put it in algebraic terms... Mm-hmm. You returned to calculus, which you abandoned at the high school level. Yes. What was your first step? What did you do? How did you... I, I had to review geometry and trig <laughs> and, and algebra. It turns out that all that stuff was, was actually very useful to calculus, and I, and I didn't think so. So, um, you know, I, I bought calculus for dummies. Um, I, I uh, watched a teaching company lecture series called Calculus Made Clear. And I liked that because he told lots of little stories and I realized it had a rich history. Um, and I loved the fact that calculus was tied to geometry in a very fundamental way. Um, uh, Archimedes and the ancient Greeks um, actually were trying to find the area under a curve, an irregular curve, and that's not easy to do. And they had some sort of way of approximating it that they called the method of exhaustion. I like it. Yeah, it, basically they, they put all these little tiny rectangles and, and the, the smaller and the more rectangles you could fit in that space, and then you'd add up all their areas together. The more of those rectangles you had, the closer you get to the actual area, but it was always an approximation. In theory, if you had an infinite number of triangles or rectangles, then you would have the, the exact area, and that is the essence of integral calculus, but Archimedes got killed before he could uh, figure that out. Uh, tell me the story of his death. He was a tremendous inventor, as you probably know. Um, all that math and geometry actually served him well in terms of building weapons of war. And Syracuse, his hometown, was under siege by the Roman army. And he held them off for like two years 
with his inventiveness. And finally, though, I mean, they, they just overpowered uh, the defenses of Syracuse and the Roman army swarms through the streets. And the general had given orders that Archimedes was to be taken alive, essentially because he wanted that mind. <laughs> he wanted those weapons. And uh, the soldier finds Archimedes, and he's sitting there in the midst of all this chaos, or so the story goes, and he's drawing figures. He's doing a geometric proof in the sand, and the soldier orders him to come with him. And Archimedes says, I beg you, let me finish, don't disturb this. <laughs> and the soldier was not patient, simply took out his sword and cleft his head in two and, uh, and killed him. He should have stuck to pure mathematics, not applied math. <laughs> he might have lived on. Well, on the other hand, he took his dreams with him. There's a wonderful line. Um, a friend of mine, Charles Seif, wrote a book about the number zero. And the line was, killing Archimedes was the Romans' greatest contribution to mathematics because for the next 500 years, there wasn't a single important contribution from that area of the world. They essentially stopped progress in its, in its tracks by killing the one man who had that mind. Wow. You have a friend who wrote an entire book about zero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a detour for us, but uh, zero <laughs> is a, is a invention, you know, it, it took quite a few centuries for human beings to come up with the concept of zero. Right, and it is relevant to calculus because that's where the notion of the limit um, comes in. Um, this, this notion that you can have an infinite number of points between two endpoints. If you've ever seen the movie IQ... It's a very charming movie uh, with Meg Ryan, and she plays Albert Einstein's niece, and a little car mechanic falls in love with her. And uh, he's trying to explain to her, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on, uh, on what it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a famous, uh, I think it's, it's not Pythagoras, it's, but it's uh, where you, uh, you can't, if you take a step, it's you know, if, if I'm Zeno's walking Zeno's paradox. Zeno's paradox, thank you. Um, <laughs> So there's a fixed distance between you and me, yeah. and if I take one step, then I have the distance, and if I take another, then it's a quarter, and, and those 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 things, those segments get shorter and shorter, but I never reach my destination because there there is no end in sight, and that's the notion of the limit, that in fact you can have an infinite number of points and still reach your destination, and that was something that took a thousand years for men, for mankind to figure out. I, I, I never really caught into that paradox. I mean, I say, why, why are you shortening your steps? Why not just continue to take normal-sized steps? Well, that's philosophers for you. <laughs> he used it to argue that motion was impossible, which, of course, is nonsense. But Well, you know, we're going to bring this up again because uh, my first introduction to calculus um, with a friend in high school, before we were supposed to know about it, uh, we both came up, came up with the conclusion that it makes no sense to talk about, say, velocity at a single point in time. So we'll come back to that. Yeah. Just just put a bookmark there. But let's talk about your uh, discovery of calculus just a little bit more. So you 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 um, got calculus for dummies, and you watched this um, series of videos. You also had some some mentors along the way. Uh, well, Sean was my biggest mentor, but I also, uh, as I was, you know, sort of developing into a physics writer, um, there was a physicist named Alan Chodos, and he worked for the American Physical Society. And I used to go into his office. I, I had weekly meetings with him. I, I was doing a lot of writing for them. And I'd go into his office with questions. I had seen, I think the example I gave was I had seen an experiment. Um, you know about the, uh, you know, if you drop a feather in a coin, which one will fall first? Which one will hit first? And, of course, if you actually do it in atmospheric conditions, the feather kind of floats down and the coin hits first. But I'd seen a demonstration where they did it in a vacuum. They dropped them both in this tube that had, where all the air had been removed, and they fell at the same rate. The feather the, just absolutely plummeted. Yeah, it's the yeah. creepiest thing you've ever seen. Fly. <laughs> it's counter to everything we experience in the real world. 
So I said, look, I understand that it happens because I saw it and I know this is a physical law, but I don't understand why it happens. And he says, if you let me walk you through the equation, it will become immediately obvious to you why this is the case. And I, of course, went, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but he said, no, really, it's not real math. It's just algebra. So uh, he walked me through it. And it's true. If you do the derivation, um, there's a big M for the mass of the Earth and two little Ms uh, for the mass of the two objects. And those two little Ms cancel out. Their mass is so tiny relative to the mass of the Earth that it's irrelevant. And you can just take that out of the equation. And it made me realize that math describes something. It is relevant. And when I started working on the calculus book, I went into it with that notion that I would find examples of where these mathematical functions that are central to calculus would be useful. Uh, the function corresponds to a geometric curve. Those curves are the face of the function. And I gave each chapter of the book is built around one particular curve, the bell curve, um, the parabola, uh, exponential decay, exponential growth, all those sorts of things. And then I would try and find one or two examples in the real world where this showed up. And what you discover is an exponential decay curve describes how fast your coffee cools, how fast your clothes will drip dry, how fast a black hole evaporates. The same underlying math is behind all these seemingly different phenomena. And I loved all these connections that I never knew existed, never thought could possibly exist. They're there, but you have to speak that language. It is the language of change. It's mathematics of how things change. Yeah, how things change and move through time, essentially. And move through time. Um, let's go back in history a bit. We've been talking a little bit about the history of math. Um, when was calculus discovered or invented? <laughs> the, uh, the 1600s. Uh, by two men independently. One was Isaac Newton and the other was uh, Leibniz. Um, it was a huge controversy. They actually had the calculus wars as a result because both men claimed to have come up with it first. Um, I think nowadays historians agree that they both came up with it independently. Newton actually came up with it first because he was older than Leibniz, but he didn't publish. He was one of those guys that just wanted to keep everything close to his chest and that secretiveness I think backfired on him. Uh, so I think that we give Newton credit uh, for, you know, making those initial breakthroughs, but Leibniz did it independently, and the notation that we use is actually Leibniz's. Yeah, he actually came up with a better way of writing it down. Mm. So Newton working in England, Leibniz in Germany, yeah. independently discover this amazing thing. Right. But, you know, they didn't discover it in a vacuum, and I think that's what people don't understand. There was all these little incremental steps, and the other key one was about 50 years before um, Descartes uh, had figured out that algebra and geometry were flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. In reading your book, uh, going over this, this history, um, it, it just drove home for me the fact that math is this amazing voyage of discovery, <laughs> to use a terrible cliche, that um, there was a time before Descartes and Fermat, uh, mm -hmm. another French mathematician, yeah. when they didn't realize, when people didn't realize that equations could be expressed geometrically, that is in pictures like mm -hmm. graphs, or that pictures could be expressed in equations. Yeah, and I hadn't realized that either. And of course, I'm very visual, so I approached calculus through the geometry and that helped me. But others, other people are more abstract and they prefer the algebra. And apparently, even among mathematicians, there e there's either algebraic or geometric uh, schools. Some are more visual, some S more conceptual. Yeah, exactly. So uh, an equation like y equals x squared, you can graph that. Yes, you can. On an xy set of coordinates, Cartesian coordinates named after Descartes yeah. himself. And you can learn things by looking at the picture or you can learn things by manipulating the equation. 
Right, and 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 they're just flip sides of the same coin, and I loved that. Uh, because then the abstraction, I, could, I had a picture, I had a face that I could mm. associate with. Mm. So what was the problem that Leibniz and Newton and others were trying to solve that calculus finally you know, was a solution to? Well, Newton was trying to develop his universal law of gravity, and he realized he didn't have the mathematical tools he needed, so he invented it. Um, Leibniz... You know, Newton was still, you know, corresponding with people and writing papers. Um, the stage had been set. They were basically, mathematicians had come all the way up to the edge of inventing calculus. You were just waiting for the right person to make that final breakthrough. Newton did it privately when he was coming up with his law of gravitation when he was writing Principia. And that came out in like 1666. That's his magnum opus, Principia yes, Mathematica. Um, yeah. followed by Optics. and But that was published, uh, I think, 1705 or 1706, many, many years after he wrote it. And that was the one place where uh, he talked about calculus. It was a little uh, thing in the back on, on the quadrature of curves where he actually finally outlined uh, his, his uh, integral and differential calculus ideas. But uh, up to that point, people had to infer it from his writings. And, but it was out there, and people were talking about his ideas, and it was really just a matter of time before someone caught up with him. Well, what was the big problem there that he was trying to solve? Calculus provided the tools. Um, every, a lot of math up to that point had been used in a very static way. And what Newton realized was, you know, this is geometry in motion, that these equations can describe how something changes through time. He had no way of describing how something moves um, or changes over a, over a set period of time. And you need that if you're going to talk about how the planets move in their orbit or how an apple falls from the tree. And his genius was developing that mathematical tool and then realizing that the same process, the parabolic curve by which the apple falls from the tree, applies to other things as well. Um, and that you can use similar equations for an ellipse for, to describe the planets in their orbits. And that the same laws that govern us on Earth also govern the heavenly bodies. And he made all these amazing connections, which is why he's pretty much seen as the world's greatest physicist, probably one of the smartest human beings to ever have lived. But he also stuck a uh, needle in his eye just to see what was back there. He did a lot of strange <laughs> things. He was a strange man. <laughs> I should say, he stuck a needle around his eyeball. It was like a blunt, a big, fat needle. But He uh, was very curious, and, you know, that is ballsy. You know, <laughs> I don't think I would do that. <laughs> um, but we, we've talked around it a little bit, but let's, let's get down to it. What is calculus exactly then? I mean, we talked about it being the mathematics of change, Newton needing it to describe yeah. changes in time. I mean, it's not the simplest description of changes in time. Like, uh, you know, I can drive my car and know that I'm going 50 miles an hour. That means that in one hour I go 50 miles, right? Right. I don't need calculus to figure that out. Except that what if, you're ch what if your speed is constantly changing? When you are on a road trip, you're not driving 50 miles an hour exactly. Sure, you could just add it up, you know, and, and figure if I'm going 50 miles an hour exactly, then this is great. But if you're starting and stopping and you're moving in three dimensions and that sort of thing, you absolutely need calculus. There's really only two ideas, and they're flip sides of each other. One is the derivative, um, which is essentially a ratio. It's the rate at which something is changing, and the other is the integral, which is uh, that process that we talked about, the method of exhaustion, where you're trying to add a bunch of little pieces up to, say, figure out how far you've gone when you're not sure how fast you were going. Mm -hmm. um, and these, these things are connected to each other in some interesting ways. Say, say if you, uh, you throw a baseball and you know how fast 
that baseball is traveling. You can then take an integral to figure out to predict where it's going to land, how far it's going to go in a given amount of time. And uh, it's calculus that enables you to do that. And what you're basically doing, what that catcher is doing, that outfielder is doing, whether he knows it or not, is taking an integral. But he's not doing it consciously. What makes it hard is when you're doing it consciously because the real world is messy and complex. In physics, they, they simplify a lot. Um, they approximate. Uh, but that is what your brain is doing. That is what is happening. Now, now you just drove here to our studio here in Santa Cruz, California from L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, this interview is that important to you. <laughs> Um, how would you apply calculus to that road trip? Well, I actually have an entire chapter on a road trip to Vegas um, where, again, you go with, the, with these, this notion that you know one piece of information mm -hmm. and you're missing mm -hmm. this other piece and you want to figure something else out. And uh, you take a derivative or an integral to figure that out. Um, so, if so let's start with the derivative. And let's not say that word too many times. People uh, yeah, are going to be know, freaking I out. I know. I don't, I don't really want to, to use that. <laughs> you can. What's a derivative going to do for us when we're it, analyzing it, your road trip from L.A. to yeah. Santa Cruz, California? If you know how far you've gone, the derivative, this, I'll try and do, the derivative will help you figure out your, rate of, your average rate of speed, you know, okay. how fast you had to have been going in order to have gone that distance in a given amount of time. And the integral does the opposite. If all you know is how fast you were going at each moment, moment in time, and it has to be each moment in time because, remember, nothing's constant, then you can use the integral to figure out how far you went. Um, you can actually use the same thing if you're on a Stairmaster, and you know it does those calorie counts, and they're, they're more accurate if you enter your weight and all these sorts of things. What that machine is doing is calculus. It's, it's estimating your burn rate, your rate of change, your, met, your metabolic rate, and then it's adding all those pieces up. Um, over a certain given amount of time, however much time you're on the thing, and telling you how many calories you burned, and it's taking an integral. It's, a, it's adding up all those increments of effort, which are yes, changing all the time. which are changing constantly, okay. so it's not like you can make an assumption. Right, right, right. So let's, again, go back to your trip, your driving trip. Now, uh, you are saying your rate of speed is changing constantly. Mm -hmm. You're speeding up, slowing down. Everybody does. A derivative would help you to find your rate of speed at any given moment in time, any instant in time. Right. That's that what, right? That, that's what you want to know. I mean, because, you know, it's, again, if, if you actually were able to maintain a constant speed, you wouldn't need calculus. You can just, like, you know, do some simple math, mm -hmm. do some basic arithmetic mm -hmm. to figure out how far you've gone. But when you're dealing with a constant fluctuation, and if you picture a curve in your head, it would be just, if you were traveling at a constant speed, it'd just be a long, flat line. Mm-hmm. So what you've got there is a rectangle. Mm -hmm. That's very simple and regular and easy to solve. We all know what that is. You're going to go like this if your speed is constantly... A wavy line. You're going to have more of a wavy line, and it's mm -hmm. much harder to figure that out. And uh, calculus is the tool that enables you to make sense and get a handle on that because it adds up every single bit, um, every single tiny piece that makes up that curve. Um, and and that's, what, that's where its power comes from because once you know what that function is, then you really can just... Pick a point, plug that number in, and it'll spit back out the answer. It's incredibly powerful. So here's the part that uh, I talked about earlier that struck me as totally uh, non-intuitive when I first heard about this concept of calculus. Uh, a friend and I learned about it from a, a, a friend of ours who was a math teacher. He, by the way, became a physicist, so he got <laughs> over this. I'm not sure I ever did. Um, the idea of instantaneous velocity, the idea of velocity at a single point in time, now, my understanding of, of motion is that it's moving between two points. It's, you're going from one place to another. If you narrow it down to a single point, how could you have motion at all? That's Zeno's paradox right there. And, yeah, I, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, 
it hurts my brain too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) At that point, you're getting into the philosophy of calculus, but it is true. I mean, when you think about what is motion, motion is these tiny, tiny little bits all added up together. That's what your change in motion is. So given that... You know, you should. There should be that little instantaneous moment. Um, Newton actually kind of brushed this over uh, uh, when he he and Leibniz both kind of said they did a little magical hand wave and says, and then it's the smallest possible unit, and then it's instantaneous motion. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it, it's it's been kind of problematic for for um, ever since. But uh, it does exist. There is such a thing as instantaneous motion. You can, in fact you know, get actual answers out of this. And that's where the limit comes into play. The limit actually made me cry at one point when I was learning calculus. Oh, tell me about this. I just didn't get it. You know, this notion that 0.99999 into infinity actually is equivalent to 1. I don't get it either. I don't get it either. And and uh, I realized that I was confusing it with things like pi, which are irrational mm-hmm. numbers where mm-hmm. they, the decimals go into infinity, but they're not the same one. Yeah. And uh, when you have 9999 into infinity... Um, the assumption is that eventually it reaches its destination, and that destination is 1. And so, therefore, since it's going to reach it anyway, it's the same thing as writing 1 to a calculus teacher. But it makes the rest of us, our heads explode. Yeah. But calculus, despite at the core of it maybe some head-exploding concepts, is a really practical math. So you show in your book, you know, the little steps you would take, given, let's say, knowledge about the position of your car at various points in time mm-hmm. on your trip from L.A. to here, right? you can take the derivative and figure out what your velocity was at any one of those points. Exactly. Yeah? And you can actually do this with Space Mountain. I, we went to Disneyland. I dragged my husband to Disneyland. And I, if you've ever been on Space Mountain... This is um, the roller coaster. Yeah, it's in the dark. Yeah. So you actually can't see where you're going. You're inside it's, the mountain. Right. It's not the scariest roller coaster <laughs> compared to some of the stuff at Six Flags, <laughs> but it gets the chills from the fact that you can't see where you're going. But you can feel the effects of your acceleration every time you turn a curve or go up and down. Your body moves because your inertia is independent of the car that you're in. So you know your acceleration. If you can map that, it turns out there is an app for that. You can, there's an accelerometer built into your iPhone, and you can download an app and turn it on when you get on, to, on the roller coaster, and it will map out your acceleration. Oh, and wow. that gives you an extremely complicated equation. You definitely need to use a computer for this. But in theory... You can, uh, you know, take two integrals, a double integral, and find and retrace your path by just adding up all those little bits and pieces. By tra- once you know your acceleration, you can take one integral to figure out your velocity, and then you mm-hmm. know your velocity, you can take another one to figure out uh, your your position, which means that you can then retrace the path that you took. So just feeling that and and recording it with your iPhone, you can then plug that into a computer and retrace what's actually going on in Space Mountain. Well, you're not making the case for learning calculus there. You're making the case for buying an iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> I love my iPhone. <laughs> there's an app for everything, but I, I assume there's apps for similar smartphones as well because I think they all have those little sensors in them now. They, they do, yeah, or at least most of them do. But, uh, you know, and I'm not, I want to promise my listeners that we're not going to dwell too long in derivatives and integrals, but uh, I do want to get a few facts out there. So, so a derivative is taking this infinitesimally small slice of a process at one instant in time. The flip side, as you say, is the integral, which is where you add up all those infinite 
number of slices to find out what's happened over a span of time. Right, and they each undo the other. They each undo the other. But for instance, we wanted to find out what your speed was at any given moment. We use a derivative. If we took your speed at all these moments and wanted to find out where it carried you on this trip, that would be an integral. Right. And now I know I've talked so much uh, for a radio interview, we've got to take a little break and leave it to something more amusing. How about a little music? Sounds good. At first I was afraid, what could the answer be? It said, given this position, find velocity. So I tried to work it out, but I knew that I was wrong. I struggled, I cried, a problem shouldn't take this long. I tried to think, control my nerve. It's evident that speed's tangential to that time position curve. This problem would be mine if I just knew that tangent line was what to do. Show me a sign So I thought back To calculus Way back to Newton And to Leibniz And to problems just like this And just like that When I had given up all hope I said nope There's just one way to find that slope And so now I I will derive Find the derivative of x position with respect to time It's as easy as can be, just have to take dx dt I will derive, I will derive, hey, hey That was I Will Derive to the tune of I Will Survive by uh, a student at the University of Oklahoma named Matthew Caney it's uh, one of my favorites. A great gift to students struggling with calculus, and people should look it up on YouTube. It's it's great. So Matthew Caney there was describing how you do a derivative. Let's uh, leave it at this. Really, once you know the logic of calculus, working out, say, a derivative or or an integral is a matter of really doing a lot of things we learned in algebra, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the, the hard part I found with the calculus was figuring out what that initial function was. And um, it was a revelation to me to realize, you know, when I talked to physicists, you know, when you're in a calculus class, you basically have a list of, of known functions and you have to kind of pick and choose which one fits. You don't get that help in the real world. You kind of have to look at it and say, well, I know that there's this function. It's a little bit like that, so I'll, I'll approximate and I'll use that and see how well that works. And then you play with it. But once you do plot out all those points and figure out all of that, then you've actually got an equation you can work with. And then it really is just nuts and bolts. It's really just crunching through all those rules that we learned about. That's why you have to be proficient at them, uh, is because that's that's the uh, the mechanical part. Uh, but the creative part comes in looking around you and saying, what equation can I use to describe this real thing? That's what physicists do. That's why that physicists aren't mathematicians. They're exactly. not inventing the math. But they're figuring out how to fit the math to the real world. And that's right. where the amazing insights come in. Yeah, and it's it's messy and complicated, and um, I'm in awe of the kinds of minds that, that can manipulate numbers that way and actually use it to, to make discoveries about nature and, as a result of those, develop technologies that we can exploit, you know, those things. I've got to ask this. Um, again, you, you are married to Sean Carroll, the physicist, so a well-known science writer married to a well-known physicist. Did you meet him when you were working as a science writer, or did you... Yes, we met because of our blogs, believe it or not. Oh, yeah? Uh, There are not very many physics blogs. Um, I started a blog called Cocktail Party Physics in 2006. Sean already had a blog called Cosmic Variance. Very popular one, yeah. Very popular one, yes. And uh, so he welcomed me to to the blogosphere, so to speak, and sent me a little email, and we just started emailing back and forth. 
I think we kind of recognized a similar sensibility and a kindred spirit, and we were both going to the same physics conference in Dallas, and we ended up meeting for dinner, and it was love at first sight. Wow. Six months later, he proposed. So, you, know. you, you realize, of course, it gives you a huge unfair advantage over other science journalists to be married <laughs> to a Caltech physicist. Well, except that I can't quote him on anything in an article. Oh, so that's true. There's ethics to be. Th there's some ethics there. So, you know, you'll notice that uh, it, it gets awkward. I have to somehow, you know, make it clear in the article that I am married to one of my sources because that's transparency. Mm -hmm. And in general, it's easier to just use him for background to help clarify a few things. And then sometimes I will ask him, can you recommend someone else that can talk to me about dark energy? And he goes, me. And I went, I can't quote you. <laughs> Nor can you plug his uh, particular theories, I guess. That would seem like bias. No, no. And the the irony, of course, is, is uh, you know, he's a big fan of uh, the multiverse, and that's just something that I, I struggle with. And, and we had this wonderful conversation early in our dating life where uh, he said, well, why do you have a problem with the multiverse in many worlds? And I says, well... <laughs> It just seems so messy, all these like ad additional universes, like an infinite number of universes. Where am I going to put my stuff? It just starts, I started to feel very crowded. And he just looked at me like I was insane and said, it's infinity. You're not going to run out of room. <laughs> but I have trouble with infinity, which is why I struggled with the limit and, and why some of those philosophical aspects of calculus. Me too. In fact, I'm going to do an entire show on infinity. Um, Ouch. Yeah, but it's just such an important thing. Yeah. Um, Sean, though, Sean Carroll, your husband, uh, has a, um, a model for how baby universes might be born, uh, such that there are many, many universes out there and many more springing up all the time. Right, right. These little the multiverse. fluctuations. Yeah, exactly. And he's got this whole idea. It, it's the chicken and egg problem, you know, that our universe maybe, you know, is an egg and we're part of a really big chicken. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, back to calculus, um, here I am saying that forbidden word on the air again. Um, after reading your book and, and being reminded, uh, because I did take calculus very long ago, um, that it really is, once you get it, some fairly simple steps. Maybe there's a lot of steps involved. Why do you think calculus has become so scary uh, to so many people? Why is it you know, many people give up on math even before calculus, but that is the place where only the strong survive. Right. So it's got this reputation, and the problem is, I think it goes down, it's gotten passed down through generations, because I see parents who were afraid of calculus passing it on to their kids and then passing it on to their kids. You see that from parents all the time. They don't mind helping their kids with homework if, unless it's math, and then they freak out. So unless you're fortunate to have a scientist or a mathematician for a parent, um, you're probably going to inherit a little bit of that math phobia. Also, those textbooks are really thick, and they're not particularly, I mean, it's just a, it looks like Sanskrit when, you, when you're not really realizing what you're looking at. And it's just a foreign language, and of course, you're not going to pick up, you know, uh, the original Dostoevsky in Russian and, and read that right away either. It's going to look like gobbledygook. Um, but for some reason, you know, foreign languages we don't associate with math, but that's actually what it is. Um, the the uh, the sticking point with calculus is that it's two really really simple ideas, but there's an infinite number of variations, so that's why they're so thick. They have to walk you through all those variations, and after a while, it's easy to get muddled and confused. Mm. You point out that even um, brilliant physicists 
resort to looking up the answers, essentially. Yeah. I, I mean, there, I, uh, there are tables and lists of the correct formulas to, to apply. You don't have to derive all of them like you do in calculus class. Exactly, actually. When you're a working scientist, that's so time-consuming. And a lot of mathematicians and scientists before them have done the hard work already. And uh, my husband actually has this really big, thick blue book called the Standard <laughs> Mathematical Table. An actual book. He still uses a book. Um, yeah, he actually, no, I, I don't think he's actually, he, he brought it out for me. He oh, dug it out. So he could say, look, days. this is what I used in graduate yeah. school. You just look stuff up. Um, and even then, not every integral is listed. The integral is, is, the integral calculus is difficult because it's, it's, it, 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 it there's so many of them. <laughs> Whereas I think most derivatives are pretty easy to figure out, but mm -hmm. uh, the integral tends to be where I struggle and where a lot of other people struggle. You know, what I did learn, you know, from talking to other people who've struggled with calculus is that I'm not special. <laughs> I struggled with all the same things that every other student struggles with. You were an English major? Yes, yes, I was. What led you to become a science writer, and especially a science writer with who who, who does a lot of work on physics? Yeah, um, I was living in New York City, and uh, I originally had decided what was trying to go to graduate school in literature, and became very clear to me after my first year that I wasn't, I didn't really want to be in academia and I was kind of floundering and figured, well, the other thing I like to do is write. I've always written since I was, since I could write, I was always making up stories and things like that. And I edited my college newspaper, all of that. So that I'll try and be a writer. That's an original thought, trying to be a writer in New York City. There's a lot of competition. So I took a day job with the American Physical Society, a physics organization, and, uh, initially just kind of a administrative sort of thing and then they realized I could write so you know we actually need a writer and I ended up going and becoming like a news writer for them and it launched a whole new career and I started talking and interviewing physicists and viewing visiting them in their labs and talking about science policy and gradually going to meetings and it's a vocabulary problem as much as anything I think most of us if it's explained well, can understand the basic concept of what an experiment is being done and what it's trying to test. It can get a little complicated. Um, particle physics in particular can be very difficult, but you can do it. You just need to do a little extra step to acquaint yourself with the vocabulary for that particular story and ask some really stupid questions. Were you scared at first to talk to physicists? Initially, yes, because I think most of us are. Most of us don't know physicists. We don't. Uh, I never encountered one. Um, I, I never, I never encountered a single physicist until I was in my 20s. And then suddenly they were everywhere. <laughs> Once you know one, you know like a hundred. Uh, and when you marry one, they're, they just drop out of the sky. They're a dime a dozen. And they're not really scary in person. They're delightful. They're actually really wonderful people. And, you know, it's interesting because I... Uh, you know, a, a couple of people have said this. I mean, scientists are just so grateful that somebody wants to hear about their work. It, it's not like you're trying to drag stuff out of them. It's more like you're just trying to get them to speak some English so you can understand what they're saying. And most of them are willing to work with you on that. Um, but they're kind, mostly, you know, there's always a few that are, you know, colorful and, and you know, maybe less kind. But in general, they're just like you and me, you know, just really, really smart um, in a very specific kind of way. And I think that's something I had to get over. Um, it's, it's interesting because I still feel stupid quite a bit because I go to these meetings and I'm around very, very smart people who can do advanced equations and know more, you know, in their little finger than I know in my whole body. But compared to the average American, I'm very, very conversant in physics. And, uh, and I owe that to them.
mm. all those physicists willing to talk to me and explain things to me and make jokes with me and get me over my fear over a period of like 15 years, I owe them a great debt. Well, we, we've said a bit about how calculus is um, practical and it's ubiquitous, right? I mean, mm -hmm. things are changing all around us. Right. And therefore, calculus applies to practically everything going on around us, yeah? Mm -hmm. And you give a lot of examples in your book. Um, obviously, motion, you know, like your car trip we've been talking about. There's growth in populations, in individual bodies. There's mm -hmm. the spread of disease. There's social networking and the way uh, information and connections are made or travel through social mm -hmm. networks. And... Uh, particular favorite example, one that you obviously relished a lot, uh, zombification. The zombies. The zombies, which is a disease. I mean, zombieism is spread among human beings. That's a disease. And you actually say that um, some researchers in Canada, led by a guy with probably the funniest name I've ever heard. Robert Smith, question mark. <laughs> Robert Smith? Yes. <laughs> he, he, he got tired of being one of a million Robert Smiths, so he added a question mark to the he end got, of his he name? He got tired of being mistaken for the lead singer of The Cure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which uh, dates him, I think, right. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to say Robert Smith led this group of researchers he, in, in a study of zombification. It was his students. He was actually trying to, uh, he, he basically builds mathematical models to describe how disease spreads, particularly slow-moving viruses and diseases like HIV. That's one of his specialties. And he realized that modern zombie lore is essentially a disease. In fact, Zombieland it compared it to a human version of mad cow disease. Um, so, you know, there, there's a latency period where you're infected, where you haven't become a zombie yet, but you will. And then once you're infected, once you become a zombie, then anybody you bite um, will also get the disease. And it spreads exponentially, in part because in a real epidemic, people die. Um, and after a time, it'll just work its way through the population. Zombies come back. <laughs> I think uh, he crunched. So it he, he, he max crunched. Out, huh? He built several um, calculus equations, but it was a, a particular kind of calculus problem where he had to couple a bunch of different equations, di differential equations, together to figure this out. But the worst case scenario, if this really happened, the zombies would wipe us out in roughly four days. They would wipe out the human race. It travels so quickly. It's it's so volatile. Um, the good news is. That's probably not the worst case scenario likely wouldn't happen. But he said the only way to fight it is the zombie land strategy, not up or shut up. You know, you basically lock and load and you wipe out as many of them as quickly as possible and then move on and just stay one step ahead of them all the time. And he has it, it sounds funny, but he's actually taken that sim a similar model to that and applied it to HIV. Canada was debating between two proposals for, uh, you know, fighting the HIV ec epidemic. And one, they had a fixed amount of money, and they wanted to know whether they should spread it out over 10 years or five. And he argued for the shorter time frame using that criteria, saying this, is, this kind of virus, you're not going to get ahead of it unless you are really, really aggressive very, very quickly at wiping that out. And uh, he used the zombie model to do that. So, so this is serious science done about what seems like a flippant subject. Exactly. But it's real. Exactly. We did introduce him to George Romero, so now he's very happy. You're serious? Yes, yes. Wait a minute. George Romero, obviously, fa you know, famous director of Night of the Living Dead and its sequels. You introduced Robert Smith? Yes. I'm to, trying to say his name right. To, 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 George, to George Romero. Um, I was working with this organization called the Science Entertainment Exchange, and we did a panel discussion on the science of zombies. 
And uh, George Romero had his new film coming out. He was he had just played at the Toronto Film Festival, and so we brought Robert Smith to talk about the math, the epidemiology of it. We had George up there to talk about the making of the film, and then we brought in a uh, neuro guy, neuroscience dude, to talk about the zombie brain. Uh, and uh, Stephen Schneider, Stephen Schlossman, who actually has a new book out, a novel out called The Zombie Autopsies, which is excellent. And so now those, you know, they're just all pals. I think George Romero got a really good big kick out of it. He's like, I just made a movie, man. You know, <laughs> These a guys are finding all this like wisdom in it. Has any movie uh, with that low a budget ever had the impact that that movie's had, I wonder? I don't think so. I mean, you have certain, I mean, you had paranormal activity and things like that, but this is mm -hmm. like an entire culture mm -hmm. that has sprung up over this. Um, you know, and zombies, they're just, I don't know what it is about them that appeals. They're right up there with like vampires. There's just something about that myth, that mythos that appeals to human nature um, on some really deep fundamental level. And George Romero tapped into that. Well, that's just one example of, of calculus uh, applied to what is a real problem, epidemiology, the spread of disease. Another um, uh, section of your uh, book deals with uh, gambling, which apparently you and Sean, your husband, have... Something of a gambling habit? Well, <laughs> well, actually, we both love poker, which both of us will argue is not gambling because you're not playing the house. Mm -hmm. You're actually playing other players. That's true. Um, but for the book, for purposes of the book, I mean, poker, the probabilities in poker are a little too complicated. So for the book, I focused on craps. That is gambling. <laughs> that uh, that's You where went the, to Vegas and played at the craps tables. I did. I did. The New York, New York Casino actually offers daily craps lessons in the mornings. And uh, so I basically went to this one class and learned how to play this game. I mean, it's, it's to their best advantage, right? I mean, they want to convince you. Mm -hmm. They want more people knowing how to play this game, not being intimidated by it. And, and uh, they want that because the odds are stacked in their favor slightly. Yes, but it's very well designed mm -hmm. because if you play well, I mean, we essentially worked out the optimal strategy, not to win, but to lose as little as possible. Our idea was that you optimize your fun. Um, and so you have a fixed amount of money you're willing to lose, and you want to make that last as long as possible. So you don't want to make crazy bets. And you want to come up with a strategy uh, you know, of how much to bet each time and what kinds of bets to make. And so I go into a great deal of that in the book. Um, and one of the things you can use with almost any gambling thing is called the Kelly's, Kelly's Criterion. It was a physicist uh, named John Kelly. He came up with this in like the 50s or 60s, I think. And um, you divide your edge by your odds to figure out how much you should bet each time. Because if you think about it, even if the odds are 99 to 1 in your favor, you don't want to bet your whole stash every time. You don't go all in. You don't go all in every time because there's always that 1%. And then you'll be wiped out in just one fell swoop. Um, on the other hand, if you and bet that's called gambler's ruin, right? Yes, and 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 uh, and you also don't want to bet too little because you know then you you know you, you can't forever win. To win much. You don't win back enough to yeah. make up for the inevitable losses. So oh, there's, I see. A, there's a sweet spot you have to hit. When you apply Kelly's criterion to craps, the equation tells you not to play <laughs> <laughs> because the craps it's it's like a one point four percent advantage edge you know the house has a 1.4 percent edge and that's all it takes to wipe out pretty much everybody over time over time you got to play a long time you will hit this is the nature of probability in randomness you will hit places where you you come out ahead we actually came out about 140 bucks ahead when we played craps but we only played for an hour and we were just starting to lose when we decided to quit good for you so um so we know the laws of probability apply 
yeah, to games like craps. But where does calculus come in? Yeah, that's a little trickier because uh, calculus is, is, again, it's one tool. So mm-hmm. um, you can use it to study your your gambling career to, to determine how often you're likely to have a winning game. So say you, you have you know, a bell curve, essentially. And you know that most of your games are going to, you know, are going to, you're going to break even or win a little or lose a little. And your, you know, your odds of, you know, how many times you're going to have either win a lot or lose a lot are there at the outliers. The tails and, of the bell curve. Yeah. yeah. So that's essentially what you do. You uh, use the bell curve equation or, or a version of it. And uh, you use that to determine how often you're likely to have a winning or losing game and hopefully try and hit, you know, that sweet spot. More so you can base your, your betting strategy uh, using the results you get from calculus? Um, I, I think that you want to use Kelly's criterion um, for the betting strategy. Um, and calculus betting is very, very complicated. In now, fact, Jennifer, I'm trying to sell calculus here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you've already played the zombie card, which you got to admit is reaching pretty low. You've got to do these special things to sell math, right? Yes, you do. And in fact, that's why uh, we have that subtitle. You know, it is it, it, is a you know shameless pandering to things that people are likely to be interested in. You know uh, how math can help you lose weight, win in Vegas, and survive a zombie apocalypse. And the only reason we did that was because we knew people were going to see the word calculus and run screaming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's been the reaction to this book? You know, it's funny. I I, uh, I was on the Craig Ferguson show, uh, the late late show with Craig Seriously? Ferguson, and wow, he had the reaction that I think based er- on this book. Yes, he had the reaction that everybody had. He held up the book and he said the calculus diaries and kind of made a face and then he read the subtitle and went I'm gonna read it now because now there's zombies in Vegas and he loves both of those things so so it worked it worked it got well, you on Craig Ferguson too I mean which is not not bad not bad to get on a late night comedy show with a book that's essentially about math well I think that I kind of love him for doing that because he does have obscure people you know you know I'm known among people who care about physics but you know let's face it I'm actually you know kind of small potatoes I'm really quite obscure um, by Craig Ferguson standards but I think he just likes having a wide variety of people on there and he's actually had some scientists on there um, and uh, I had a lot of fun mm. it goes by like that I want to push you a little bit further, though, in this cell job uh, you're performing on, on behalf of calculus Yeah, here. this is the calculus make me care. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we know that scientists need it, right? We know that computers can do it. We know that a lot of our technology will do it on our behalf. Yeah, but, we've automated a lot of calculus. Exactly. You know, and, and then our brains do it subtly, you know? I mean, yeah. you say, uh, you know, a baseball player running for a fly ball may be deriving the integral of that uh, of that uh, trajectory of that baseball in order to you know get at the right spot at the right time and catch the ball, right? But uh, but he's not sh- doing it consciously. Exactly. So why should we bother to consciously learn calculus? Um, I think be- th- th- why should we bother appreciating art? Why should we bother learning music? I mean, that's a different interview. Yeah, I know, but but it's it's the same <laughs> question um, because. Uh, I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I use this argument, too, in high school. It's like, well, I know I'm going to, like, do something in English or writing, and I'm not going to ever need math, so why do I need to know this stuff? Um, and I'm really, really sorry now that I took that attitude because you don't know what's going to happen in your life. And particularly, I, I would say this to high school students, don't limit yourself at 15, 16 years old. Don't limit your choices in life that young because you don't know what you're going to fall in love with. I was 23 when I fell in love with physics, and it was too late for me. I also missed out on a new way of looking at the world. Calculus, math in particular, and calculus uh, is the language of nature. 
Um, and shortly after my husband and I got engaged, we were traveling, uh, driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, and we stopped off just north of Malibu to admire the sunset, a nice ocean sunset. And um, uh, it's, it's a beautiful scene. There's the waves, all these little complicated waves out there, and the sun is setting. And he puts his arms around me because he's very romantic, and he leans in and he whispers, wouldn't it be fascinating to fake for, take a Fourier transform of those waves? And a Fourier transform is a calculus equation, a problem that you can do to figure out what, what various little waves add up to make that huge complicated structure that we were looking at. Um, and it made me realize I am never going to look at an ocean sunset again in quite the same way because I looked out and just saw this simple, you know, picture-perfect postcard, and he saw everything that was going on underneath, this whole secret world. And why wouldn't you want to catch a glimpse of that every now and then? The connections that we don't even suspect exist between things, between a cup of coffee and a black hole. You know, never in a million years would it occur to any of us to link those two things, but mathematically there's a tiny link. I'm not going to ask you what Sean says when you're um, having intimate moments. <laughs> <laughs> I have an annoying habit of right when he's falling asleep asking him difficult questions. <laughs> it's like, what's the limit? You know? <laughs> I love that story, though. He looks out on the, uh, you know, the romantic sunset and sees uh, the potential for Fourier transforms uh, on the waves. Exactly. I mean, he saw this whole other reality, uh, and it's all there. It coexists. So it's uplifting and uh, mind-expanding to know things like calculus. Right. And also, I think for me personally, this gets back to, you know, I let fear rule my decision back in high school. And I think that any time you do that, any time you don't do something because you're afraid you're, you'll fail, you are cheating yourself out of something. I just think that is you know, a rule for life. It's got nothing to do with math. In my case, it just happened. And I think for a lot of people, we let our fear of math keep us away from it. You don't have to become an expert. I'm not an expert. I could not pass the AP calculus exam, you know, although I, I can do some simple problems. I mean, I, I, I can see Jane Run is where I am in calculus. Um, but I get it. And I catch glimpses here and there. And that's enough for me. It's like calculus appreciation class. Now you you talk to uh, students and teachers and others and mm -hmm. and and um, spend a little time in your book talking about the big problem facing you know math and science education here in the U.S., which is the business of math anxiety of kids turning off to it sometimes at very young ages, sometimes later in high school or even at some point in college, but for whatever reason, the U.S. falling behind some other countries that seem to be doing it better, seem to be doing it different. Mm -hmm. Do you have any conclusions? Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I don't want to come off as, you know, I'm very careful about drawing conclusions because there's a lot of very smart people doing mm -hmm. some interesting uh, work on there. Um, but what I think is happening um, is that for some reason we get an early negative experience and rather than simply accepting that as, you know, accepting that failure or that negative experience as part of the learning process, we immediately jump to the conclusion of, I am bad at math. <laughs> and it becomes part of our identity. And we then start to use that as an excuse to avoid having to go through that unpleasant experience again. Um, and I certainly it was all about avoidance with me. I did not want to be humiliated. I did not want to look stupid. Um, and I think that one of the reasons I was drawn back to calculus when I, after I got older I learned how to deal with failure. I learned that that was part of how you learn. 
I learned about physics and wrote about physics by asking a lot of really stupid questions and, you know, not being afraid to ask those questions. I learned jujitsu because I fell down a lot and got beaten up a lot and learned from my mistakes and I got back up. Why didn't I do that with math? I don't know because, you know, I didn't love it enough or there was not enough in it to make me want to get up and try again with math. And I think that that's a key element. How do you get kids to want to keep bashing away at the wall till they break through? And they will break through. I mean, they're patient enough to, to learn how to skateboard really well despite a lot of falls in the process, right? They'll master Portal 2 in four days. Exactly. <laughs> and including a lot of fail messages appearing on the screen. But with math, it, it seems as though uh, there's not enough of a payoff to put up with the stigma of being dumb or, or failing. Now, I've heard that in, in some Asian countries, for instance, um, who, whose students tend to do better on math tests, that the emphasis is on hard work and not on some idea of being innately gifted or right. having this talent, either having it or not having it. Whereas in America... There's this idea that you either got it or you don't. And yeah. a lot of kids get the message, I don't. Yeah, and that's where the self-identification comes in. I mean, I self-identified as being bad at math. The irony being I got A's in math, but because it didn't come as easily to me as other things, because I actually had to really struggle a little bit with mm -hmm. it, I absorbed this notion that I did not have an innate ability at math. And I think that there are, you know, mathematically gifted people, you know, who do seem to have a, a sense about it that most of us don't. But this notion that if you, if you don't have that gift, you can never learn it is not helpful. Um, clearly, we can learn it. <laughs> you know, I, I sympathize with educators who are trying to crack this seemingly insoluble problem, making math sexy. And all the ways they try to do it, you well, know. Well, look, yeah, it's embarrassing. I had to sell it with zombies, you know, exactly. but I also knew what I was up against because I knew that I wouldn't pick up a book about calculus, not in a million years unless you gave me zombies. But could popular culture ever do it? I mean, um, you talk about a TV show, and I haven't seen this show. There's a TV show in which a mathematician's the hero? Oh, it's been canceled. Oh. But it ran for what like... What was it called? It's called Numbers. It was marvelous. I still show clips when I give talks. Um, it, the, the, uh, it was an FBI agent and his younger genius mathematician brother. Um, they called the, his university CalSci, but it was, of course, Caltech. They filmed at Caltech. <laughs> and David Krumholtz played the mathematician. And, you know, he had his pure mathematical research and he had the physicist that friend that he was collaborating with on, you know, pure research projects. But increasingly through the program, he gets pulled into helping his brother solve crimes with his mathematical abilities. Um, for instance, looking at, you know, where all these instances of, you know, attempted rapes or rapes have happened, he can look at all those points and figure out where the source of origin is, where the killer lives or works, where that where he operates, his operating base, and help him catch it that way. And so lots of little ways that math could be helpful. But they also had this wonderful visual element where, you know, Charlie would look at a sprinkler system. And in his mind, it's, it's the same thing as that my husband sees. He sees the math. You know, when you shoot a billiard ball, you see the math. When you see those drops flying out, your your brain is doing equations, and you can see that there's, you know, something else going on underneath the surface. And it did a wonderful job conveying that. We need more shows like that, mm. actually. Did it work, though? Do we know of any um, impact on the student oh, population? Oh, it had a huge impact. Um, in in fact, uh, the, uh, the studio partnered with... Um, Wolfram Research to essentially set up a website associated with each episode where they would talk about the math behind each episode for people who were interested in learning more. And um, 
uh, it was one of the first times, I think, that you had, say, uh, Hollywood screenwriters going to a math meeting to talk about communication. Wow. And yet um, it was canceled. So apparently some numbers didn't work out. Well, look, uh, first of all, it was in the Friday night death slot. Uh-oh. But it ran for six years. Most series get five or six years. You know, you really, I think it had a good run. And I think that it did very, very well. And a lot of series that go beyond five or six years really shouldn't. Mm. They run out of ideas. Uh, that's a natural, I think, life course. Um, what I would love to see is a new version of numbers at some point. So you think there's hope, though, for America and math? I think so. I learned it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's what gives me hope, is that at some point I grew up enough um, to really want to learn this. And again, I I don't think I'm exceptional. I struggled with all the usual things. I I hit all the roadblocks that everybody warns about, um, because I went back after the fact and realized, oh, crap, that happened to me, too. (laughs) So I'm very, very typical in that respect. Do you want to recommend uh, one or two sources uh, for people intent on learning it? Of course, they'll start with your book, which is, let's say it again, The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Exactly. And Uh, that's not really going to teach you calculus, but it'll help you get over your fear. It'll give you the history, the context, and help you get over some of the basic heebie-jeebies over it. And then what next? Um, There's uh, lectures called Calculus Made Clear by the Teaching Company. And I use the Complete Idiot's Guide to Calculus. Also, there's a manga guide to calculus. It's uh, a Japanese comic book. It's a Japanese comic book, and I really enjoyed the manga guide to calculus. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you're, not, you're only going to learn a little bit of calculus um, on that one, but it's very useful and very practical. Has a, the, the story in the manga is a journalist, a young female journalist, you know, gets like, assigned to this outpost in the news agency, and the editor there forces her to learn calculus so that she can report on stories. Um, and it's very, very well done. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up for sure. Jennifer, thanks for spreading the knowledge. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Jennifer Wellette, her latest book is The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And then I went ahead to the second part. But as I looked at it, I wasn't quite sure how to start. It was asking for the time at which velocity was at a maximum. And I was thinking, woe is me, but then I thought, this much I know. I've got to find acceleration set it equal to zero. Now if I only knew what the function was for A, I guess I'm gonna have to solve for it some way. So I thought back to calculus, way back to Newton and to Leibniz and to problems just like this. And just like that, when I had given up all hope, I said, nope, there's just one way to find that slope. And so now I, I will derive, find the derivative of velocity with respect to time. It's as easy as can be, just have to take dvdt. I will derive, I will derive.